Hi there, I'm Chloe and welcome to my new series on Snape by Podcasts. You might know me from the franchise play series I do with Mark. You're listening to Masters of the Macabre, a new series where I'll be taking a look at the careers of various horror filmmakers who've made an impact on the genre. I hope to talk a bit about their work in a social and historical context, how filmmakers' careers developed over the course of time, and of course, talk about the significance and meanings of the films themselves. My first episode, which at the time of release will be during Pride Month, I want to discuss a hugely significant gay director and view his films through the lens of queer film theory. Despite only making four horror films, the influence they have can still be seen today, and one even recently got the remake treatment. I'm of course referring to James Whale. Today is part one of two, and this episode will be focusing on Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. So get comfortable, put your giggles on, and I hope you enjoy. To start with, I wanted to give a little bit of background. James was born in Worcestershire, England in 1889. He was one of seven children and born into a working class family, having grown up in an area that became known as Black Country because of smoke and air pollution. It came from heavy iron and coal industries there. His father was also part of these industries and was a blast furnaceman. However, James managed to carve a different fate for himself, and at the age of 21, after years of working in a copper shop, he was able to afford to send himself to the Dudley School of Arts and Crafts, which sounds pretty fun. Strangely, however, it's after being listed in the army and being held as a prisoner of war, where he spent plenty of time performing and writing, that he truly discovered his love of the arts, and he credits that as being a part of how he sort of came to his career. He then went on to direct in theatre, and it was his production of Journey's End that propelled his career. When he went on to make his film directorial debut with an adaptation of it, this is what caught Universal's eye. After plans to have Robert Flory direct Frankenstein and Bella Lugosi to star, these plans fell through, Whale was now a hot show in Hollywood, and he was picked up to direct instead. Although this depiction of Frankenstein's monster isn't completely focused on the book, and some things have been changed, you'll notice, for example, Victor Frankenstein is now Henry Frankenstein, it's more influenced by the play version, the essence of the monster is pretty similar and managed to carry the same themes nonetheless. Here we have an outsider who's abused by nearly everyone around him and even his own creator. He only attacks in retaliation or kills by accident, such as the example of Maria, who he throws into the water thinking she'll float because he was literally born yesterday and no one told him that people drown. There's definitely a sympathy towards the monster that runs through the novel, and I think this really comes through the film as well. This is where some critics start to argue that the monster is a representation of a world's sexuality. The character is an outsider who is very much rejected by society for things he has no control over. Um, this is very much a narrative that I guess queer people can really understand. It's suggested by some that Wales' experience as an openly gay man in Hollywood in the 30s wasn't too awful. He did live very discreetly, so I'm sure this wouldn't have been the case if he had been otherwise and been really open about it. On the other hand, however, Harry Benshoff notes in his book Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality in the Horror Film, many people have actually suggested that Wales' homosexuality contributed to his eventual expulsion from the Hollywood community and his eventual suicide. Nevertheless, we can never truly know what his experience was like, and it seems unusual that he wouldn't have been rejected at some point or experienced any kind of homophobia of any kind during a time when it really wasn't something accepted. For some reference, Sodomy laws weren't fully ruled as unconstitutional in the US until 2003, and same-sex marriage wasn't even legalised in all 50 states until 2015. That's only five years ago, so I doubt anyone would believe for a second that it was never an issue for him. Anyways, this version of Frankenstein has become so commonly associated with the title. What do you think of when someone mentions Frankenstein? We most likely picture Boris Karloff with his angular head, or black eyes, Nick Bolts and sunken cheeks. These images have become so synonymous with the story despite all the other adaptations. This is not the first, which was in fact 1910, made by the Edison Manufacturing Company, and certainly not the last. It's inspired so many films in yet this is the most iconic one. You don't even need to have seen it to know the quote, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. alive. Or to remember what the monster looked like thanks to the makeup artist Jack Pierce who reshaped Carl's head and made him into the iconic monster that he is. Frankenstein is also a brilliant example of how influential the German expressionist movement was on Wales' work, which we see consistently in his horror films. The dark contrasting shadows and big cold gothic sets certainly pay homage to it. In Wales' 1935 sequel Bride of Frankenstein it's even more obvious, with a particular image of Henry Frankenstein and Dr. Pretoria's close-up faces looking wicked and mad while casting deep shadows for a moment as they bring the bride to life. Now I somewhat prefer Bride of Frankenstein in some ways to the first one, although I felt the pace of the first scene bad to me. I think that the 
themes are further explored and expanded on in a meaningful way here, and it even had more moments that made me feel a real twinge of sadness from Monster, I do feel that the queer readings are even more tangible in it. Dr. Pretoria certainly gives us gay vibes, and that's the academic term, I believe, which is really obvious with his obsession with Henry's work and apparent distaste for Elizabeth, Henry's wife. He even interrupts their wedding night to propose they work together like a real cock blocker, and always leads up to them in the end, creating a creature of their own, essentially same-sex parents together for a brief moment, and this was also the case for Henry and his hunchback assistant in the first film. Bale's decision to consistently hire apparently queer actors such as Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, who was rumoured to be bisexual, but of course very few actors were out at the time, helped push the subject a little further. According to an article by Jess Saporito called Why is Bride of Frankenstein Off an Hour's Gay Parable, the original director's cut was an extra 15 minutes in length, but was cut down due to concerns about the subtext being too much in conflict with the production code at the time. To a casual viewer watching films such as these made during the time of the Hayes Code, they might always notice the themes suggested in the film, than always glaringly obvious initially. But what these films had to do in order to make it on screen was to hide their themes, and certain things became shorthand to imply what the film was really about. Funnily enough, I think generally queer viewers are especially good at spotting these subtexts because we've always been so starved of queer representation, we really have to dig for it, you know? And with the constant queer coding of monsters and villains not just in horror movies but everywhere, including Disney, that's where we begin to see ourselves represented the most. So here we have a gay director taking that and using it to show a sympathetic side of the monster by showing a desperate need to be accepted by someone, to not be alone, because as one character teaches him, alone is bad. So, how do Frankenstein films fit into the code? The guidelines stated the following, that one, no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it, hence the sympathy of the audience should not be thrown to the side of the crime, wrongdoing, evil or sin. Two, correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. Three, law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. So by looking at these guidelines, we can begin to understand how Whale managed to get away with even more obvious subtext in the film, such as that of the same-sex creators. Henry and the Doctor are punished for their unnatural creation for monsters in the sense that Henry and the locals are put in danger because of their actions, and the Doctor ultimately ends up being blown up by the monster himself, not to mention the monster is clearly viewed by everyone he comes across as a perversion. I think this shouldn't have existed, but does because Henry decides to play God, and that in itself is viewed as immoral. Look, it's the monster! This is my friend. Friend? This is the fiend that's been murdering half the countryside. Good heavens, man, can't you see? Oh, he's blind. He isn't human. Frankenstein made him out of dead bodies. I think one of the most interesting and powerful readings of the story of Frankenstein as a queer parable is that of the transgender theorist Susan Stryker. In the 1994 essay, My Worst Victor Frankenstein, above the village of Chamonix, I hope I pronounced that right, it's French, she says the following in connection to her experience of the transgender body. It's a technological construction. It is flesh torn apart, sewn together again, in a shape other than that in which it was born. In these circumstances, I find a deep affinity between myself as a transsexual woman and the monster in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like the monster, I am too often perceived as less than fully human, due to the means of my embodiment. Like the monsters as well, my exclusion from the human community feels a deep and abiding rage in me that I, like the monster, direct against the conditions in which I must struggle to exist. This is a really amazing, angry and eloquent essay that I would really recommend reading in full, there'll be a link to it in the podcast research notes. I think this quote reveals so well why it's so easy to empathise with the monster as well as why it resonated so much with the queer fans in the horror community. Most viewers, whether part of the LGBT community or not, can probably get on board with his rage. We see that he wants love and acceptance like everyone else, and when he gets there for a moment he's truly happy that he's found a friend in the blind man who's just happy to have him around and keep him company. This is unfortunately short-lived, and after his brief taste of acceptance, it's torn away from him. This is almost sadder than if he'd never known it at all, because he knows that love is possible. Here we also get some more gay vibes, again a technical term, as the monster uses the word friend to describe both the blind man 
and his bride who has created for him as a mate. Whale uses the term here interchangeably, thereby suggesting that the nature of both relationships are the same in Nonsense's eyes. So I'm going to leave it there today, I'm going to try and keep these episodes kind of short, um, although I'm sure this could go on all day, but I won't bore you with the sound of my voice any longer. I hope you managed to enjoy and maybe consider listening to the part two of the James Whale episodes for The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man, which were released in between the Frankenstein films. If there's anything you think I missed out or that you'd like to hear me discuss on these, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at ChloeDav196, or you can also go through at Snakebitehorror. Until next time, have a great day and a wonderful, safe bride. Bye.